I don't know, man. I, yeah, it's funny to think that, well, it's not funny. I think everything's funny. God, you got me to watch this movie again. <laughs> Welcome to A Century in Cinema. I'm Arthur. And I'm Andrew. And this is a podcast where we discuss a classic film from every year. Today's film is from 1936. H.G. Wells' Things to Come, directed by William Cameron Menzies. Give us our history lesson, Arthur. So the year is 1936, and as we will see in Things to Come, uh, the world is in a tense time and place. War breaks out in Spain this year. There's a civil war between the Republicans and the Nationalists. Uh, those titles are not what you might think they are in today's world. They could also be described as uh, the Communists and the Fascists, maybe. Uh, this war will go on for almost three years, and the U.S. ambassador at the time will call it a rehearsal for World War II. So speaking of fascists, Mussolini captures Ethiopia and declares this the foundation of the new Roman Empire. Japan takes control of Shanghai in their continued conflict with China. And of course, let's talk about Germany. Yeah, so the Hindenburg airship was a propaganda tool completed this year by the Nazis. It would apparently drop leaflets around the country to drum up support for a German occupation of the Rhineland, which uh, violated the Treaty of Versailles after World War I. So Hindenburg was later turned into a commercial airship that would fly over the Atlantic. And uh, we'll have a little follow-up on that next week. No spoilers there, Andrew. No spoilers for the Hindenburg on this podcast. Mm -mm. For the movies, yes. Oh, all the time. Just ruthless spoilers. Also this year, Germany hosts the Olympic Games, and African-American Jesse Owens defies Adolf Hitler's racial claims, sweeping the gold medals this year. It's unfortunate that even though he was seen as a hero by a lot of people, Jesse Owens returned to the United States and still dealt with the ingrained discrimination there. FDR essentially ignored him when he came back. It is not a good look at all. So all of this is rather pertinent as we start our film this week. Very pertinent. Uh, so the film was made in 1936, but it starts in the year 1940. And if you're watching the film, you immediately know that war is imminent. The newspapers all over the streets of a small, a small English town called Everytown? Everytown, mama. <laughs> super subtle just like everything in this film this film is a is a puzzle of subtleties and delicacies it, in this film at the beginning the radio broadcast is like and there's possible invasions from that country with which we all know about and don't want to describe and it's like okay we're a little we're a little tepid on Germany at this point? Well, it reminds me kind of what we talked about in 1933 with the Hayes Code, how you couldn't insult other countries and their mm. institutions. So it took forever for Hollywood to get around to criticizing the Nazis. Maybe it was the same thing in England. I don't know. Whose turn is it on the plot? I always forget this stuff. Um, I could do the plot, I think. 
Okay. This one's actually kind of easier to describe than some of the more recent ones we've done. Yeah, I think so too. And mainly because really you shouldn't mention characters or names in this plot description. It's more a sequence of episodic events that take place over the course of an entire century. So you're coming in and out of various people's lives in every town, England. But really, I never felt anything for anyone in this story, except maybe annoyance. Oh, so much annoyance. Our, like, first major <laughs> character introduction is a guy, and he's like, do you really think there's going to be a war, father? And he's like, I think there will. And he says, oh, that's just going to mess me right up. And it's like, <laughs> he's talking about how he's not going to be able to go to medical school because of it and stuff, and it's you just don't care at all and then the next person who gets like a more proper introduction is this super optimistic guy being like oh war isn't even gonna happen and if it is it'll be a good thing and it's like yeah that's how it kicks it off yeah so let's just skip over what characters are doing in this story no one cares (laughs) we'll be talking more in depth later (laughs) so this film starts out in 1940 with newspapers around every town declaring that war is imminent on christmas day sure enough war comes we see a lot of war and various montages that go on for maybe two decades i think it's in 1960 that the war eventually just subsides because basically it seems that the world is in ruin by this point who won the war it doesn't matter civilization has descended into barbarism because there is a plague sweeping the globe there are various warlords that seem to be in charge of the remaining sections of the population uh the one we see in every town is trying desperately to get a fleet of airplanes off the ground so that he can go bomb other enemies. When lo and behold, a man from the future basically descends in their airplane and tells the warlord that he has to join their cause, which is this group of how do you even describe these guys? Um, I have a few choice words for how I would describe them. Let's call them a benevolent dictatorship. Um, They're going around telling everyone that they have to join their cause and progress into the future, build new technology, join them, etc., etc. When the warlord in every town doesn't join this group of aeronauts, the aeronauts gas the population. It's, It's peaceful gas, don't worry. And then they take over every town. And then over the course of many decades we see a montage of progress and building new structures underground structures a city of the future this culminates in 2036 a whole hundred years after this film came out when the elites of this grand new society um decide that they want to go to the moon and spread humanity into the stars there's a group of people that don't want to do this but it doesn't matter. The astronauts go to the moon. I think that's that's a fair summary. Yeah, so it's like it's a historical war drama, then it's Mad Max, then it's like a sci-fi movie. It's like Flash Gordon at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. That's way better. Yeah. So, well, th- so this was your first time watching this film. What did you think of it? No, no, no. I think <laughs> our dear listeners want to know what you think of this. 
<laughs> so this was my second time watching this film. When I was popping it in, I told my roommate who I watched it with, I said, I am going to like this movie today. Because <laughs> I was in a very, very strange headspace the first time I watched this movie. And I can admit that. And there were full sections of the movie that just... I wasn't asleep, but they just were going in my brain and then right back out. I wasn't taking in any of it. And then there was a certain section near the end of the second part that made me really upset. And I was like, maybe I'm misreading all this. So I like drank coffee and started at seven and it was nice lighting and everything. And I was like, okay, here we go. (laughs) Okay. I want, I want to know what the part was that really bugged you towards the end. You said. I don't know. Something about the people who are actually the saviors of the world being the people who are going to air raid and bomb Britain. Okay, so yeah, the same part that I was a little. <laughs> and revisiting it, I was even more upset because I was like, no, these guys are like, this is total, this is total fascism. It's so weird that a film that's trying to predict World War II successfully is saying that the good guy is going to be essentially like I I will settle for soft fascist but it's fascist that bothered me deeply <laughs> it's really hard uh, I mean I, I was trying to get into the headspace of someone watching this film in 1936 with everything going on in the world at the time and I'd say the first act of this film is kind of scary and dark but yeah that like midpoint maybe the bombing of every town which kind of hints at the bombing of London, which is going to happen in just a couple years. If yeah. I'm someone watching this film in a theater, like, I don't know what to feel about that. That's so weird. Yeah. And I I just find this film politically a little thick. And uh, I don't think it predicts a lot successfully, which is literally its entire purpose. So that annoys me. And also, I'm just going to be real. I'm going to call a spade a spade. I think this movie's a little boring. I think that there are a lot of really good scenes in there. Actually, up until that bombing sequence, I love the Mad Max stuff. That stuff is so silly and campy and fun that I can sort of (laughs) just be entertained by it. Mm -hmm. I think that it's just a movie that is clearly so silly and not very... um, It's just not very... I wouldn't call this film super intelligent in any way, but the movie wants you to think it's intelligent and like really not only wants me to think it's intelligent wants me to think that it's smarter than me that kind of stuff bothers me and also the climax where it's like people who are seeking comfort and people who are seeking stability in life are going to be the ultimate villains of progress i think that those two ideals can be way more hand in hand than this film believes because in this film if you just want to be a comfortable person then that means you are actively going to be protesting progress, literally running to a space rocket, and it just gets so dumb. Um, So I will say, watching this with my roommate, halfway through, we started roasting it, and it got really good. If it leaned a little sillier, and if it was a way more campy adventure sci-fi thing, like it almost turns into at certain points, I could really see some redeeming factors in this, and then I could take all of its predictions at face value and be like, it was a movie made in the 30s, who cares? But it's the fact that it does have this huge political undercurrent that is inherently sort of evil in my mind. (laughs) And uh, and then on top of that, like 
when it gets to that stuff and when it gets to the people positing and the people monologuing about progress, it's like, oh man, I think I have somewhere to be. Like, you know, that's how how this movie makes me feel. (laughs) So, um, not a ringing endorsement for things to come, but I have been very, very positive. I mean, I've loved every movie we've watched from the thirties so far. So I think it's only fair that there's at least one in here that I'm like, eh, this ain't for me. So to anyone who thinks that we just lavish praise on everything, Andrew hates this film. <laughs> Have we lavished praise on everything? We've watched a lot of great movies, though. That's the problem. We've only watched really good films that have stood the test of time. We uh, only get to do this once a week with each other. We don't want to waste it on a movie that we hate. No, I think this film is ambitious, but totally falls on its face. And that is also intriguing to see it just not stick the landing whatsoever. Okay. Okay. My thoughts on this film was that it was terrible and like a total failure. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I think I would agree with everything you said, but I think that the story behind this film and what it's trying to do is interesting enough for me that I still really enjoyed thinking about it. I didn't enjoy watching it. I didn't have anyone with me to really laugh at the film with, but, uh, I keep thinking, of this film is just really ambitious in what it's trying to do in the same way that 2001 a space odyssey is ambitious in what it's trying to do but that film is a success this film is a failure Mm. and and even arthur c clark the writer of 2001 had stanley kubrick watch this film in preparation for their time together on 2001 um, because it was similar to the experience that they were going for there It's worth noting that Stanley Kubrick really didn't like this film, though. Uh, (laughs) I think he improved on it a little bit. The plot that spans over decades and over time. Oh, yeah. I guess that's a huge part of that film as well. And how (laughs) at the end of that film, like humanity ascends to some higher place of being that we can't really comprehend. And H.G. Wells was going for a similar thing here. At least he says he was. But yeah, it just doesn't work. I mean, H.G. Wells is like one of the granddaddies of science fiction, along with Jules Verne, Mary Shelley, writers from this uh, late 1800s era who were who had their finger on the pulse of what was happening in society and all these big changes that were coming along and their way of predicting what was going to happen in the future was to experiment with it through fiction Um, So that I I do like that Victorian era science fiction. It is a really cool genre, I think. And it's very different from the science fiction that we have today. So H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds, Time Machine fits into that early stage of science fiction that I think is a really fun genre to explore. But it's worth noting that all the books that we know him from, like the Time Machine, War of the Worlds, uh, were written in a span of like five years at the beginning of his career. Do you feel like those books are all legitimate predictions like this is? Or do you think those are meant to be purely fiction? I mean, even when you read those novels, characters are not H.G. Wells' strong suit. He's not good at writing dialogue. He's not good at being subtle, right. for sure. Um, there's early passages in War of the Worlds where he basically just states exactly what he intends the allegory of this story to be for anyone not getting it. So none of this really surprised me to see how on the surface everything was in this film. Like you said, some of the predictions are a bit silly 
or you just get hung up on what happened and what didn't happen that you just, because that's all the film is trying to do. It's not entertaining. H.G. Wells, even though he's a smart, intelligent guy in a lot of ways, so, so much of this comes across as so naive compared to something like Metropolis, not only in its predictions and sort of the vision of how society will work, but just how to write. Right. Like Metropolis didn't do super well when it came out. I mean, it lost a ton of money, but it's also worth noting that Things to Come lost a ton of money. But one of them is regarded as one of the best films ever made. Like Metropolis has stood the test of time and Things to Come did not. Exactly. And it's not, I, I don't think it's because of predictions made about society in either film. I think it's really literally just the characters in Metropolis being a way more engaging and way more, they feel like real people, right? They're mm -hmm. going through something that even though they're in this weird sort of gothic retro futurist sort of world, they're still real people and we still relate to them. The The goals and things to come, the, the people we're watching here are not people. They're like sounding boards for these ideas that H.G. Wells had. Exactly. Um, that he just wants to kind of like, he just wants to talk at you through these characters. And you can feel that. And it's very frustrating. I'm sure discussions of Metropolis were abound in this production at some point. I don't think there's any way you could get around that, especially with a studio putting so much money on it. Oh, it was discussed all the time, man. Apparently, H.G. Wells was constantly comparing this film to Metropolis during its production. And <laughs> basically... This had this strange obsession with making it completely unlike Metropolis because he, as we know, hated that film. I mean, Metropolis is like a good movie and this one isn't. So they really succeeded in that goal. They did. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I mean, it is it is fun to compare the two of them as film and to see what the art of film, how it does grasp an audience how it does latch on to people metropolis as i've said is one of those films that even though it's silent i can show it to people and whenever i do they are always intrigued they are always stunned by parts of it this movie is half the length time and has sound and my second time watching it i struggled to stay awake for it and i think that it really is that pull, like what you said that pull of a narrative that pull of you know, a character arc and that's completely missing here. So that's, a, that's, that's that, you know, Metropolis won. So I can't be salty about it. <laughs> it totally has no. been. I mean, this no. movie is not brought up in public discussion very often when it comes to sci-fi movies or anything like that. I don't, I, I'm going to be completely honest. I don't think I would be as quick to defensiveness if it wasn't for that Metropolis review. <laughs> And so, I don't know, for him to just completely discredit something like that and say it's the silliest film ever made and all of that, and then for his predictions to be this silly, <laughs> that's where that's where my issues are coming from. Apparently, H.G. Wells sat down with Joseph Stalin at some point. I think this is insightful into what the hell this guy was thinking. Okay. Um, and was having an interview with Joseph Stalin uh, shortly before this film was produced. And H.G. Wells actually agrees with a lot that Stalin was trying to do, but he hated the way Stalin was doing it and letting people like farmers and uh, people who H.G. Wells thought were not 
like prepared to lead, lead the world. So H.G. Wells is trying to advocate for a a society ruled by scientists, philosophers, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I mean, anyone who says they kind of agree with Joseph Stalin, but um, just maybe a, a few differences. Yeah, I mean, that's a pigeonhole right there for me. <laughs> that that confirms everything. <laughs> I genuinely, genuinely see this film as fascist. <laughs> Um, I mean, let's let's talk about the predictions that he makes in this this book of his, because he thinks that I, I, I think that H.G. Wells is of the opinion that liberal democracy is on the way out and dictatorships and fascism are going to be the way of the future, because the only way he sees the world going and having any sense of hope is to have a benevolent dictatorship take over the entire world. Which uh, benevolent and dictatorship are not two words you uh, usually use together. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, <laughs> is this guy an idiot? Is H.G. Wells an idiot? <laughs> is that what's going to happen? I don't think he's an idiot. And I think <laughs> no, anyone no. who is trying to predict the future in some way is going to look like an idiot because they're going to get it wrong. You just are. So a lot of this looks silly. But yeah, he was obsessed with trying to see where the world was going. I mean, he was obsessed with futurism. That was that was his deal, uh, especially later in life. Like I said, everyone thinks of him earlier as a novelist, and he was. But later on, uh, I think he would have seen himself more as a journalist in a lot of ways, and a journalist trying to trace trajectories and see what he could say about the world in the future and try to steer it in a way that he thought was beneficial. Which is why, you know, I don't think it's fair to say H.G. Wells was completely anti-genocide, because even though it's one person who dies, the boss who dies from the sleep bombs, and it's defended, that guy is clearly, you know, also a stand-in for an entire group of people and how they perceive the world. I think he's supposed to be a stand-in for the fascist dictators at the time, though. I mean... Right, and he gets beaten out by the more powerful dictator. <laughs> I, I I can see that, but I also do think he's supposed to represent people who are unwilling to adapt, people who are scared of change. And if you want to take the themes of the whole movie as a whole and not as a series of episodic sort of things, even though it feels that way, definitely fits into that sort of anti-progress mindset that you, that you described. Yeah, because every other character, including his wife, his wife is someone who is able to adapt. You know, at first she's completely on his side, and then she realizes, oh, I actually see some potential in all of this, in this future. And because of that, she's allowed to live. So it really is like the people who are, you know, stone-faced and can't adapt and, you know, there are a lot of people who have the mentality of, you know, adapt or die. And I think that there are certain laws of nature that fit into that to a certain extent as well. But, you know, H.G. Wells is fully like, we just need to bomb those people. And it's so weird because I'm coming from War of the Worlds, which I do think has like an allegory that I really appreciate and admire um, into something like this where the allegory is it's it's so naive and mistaken in its worldview that even though H.G. Wells might say it means something, you can't help but watch it and sort of be put off by it. And hmm. I want to hear it from his mouth, what he believes. I want to read something from this from this time in his life and see what he thinks 
this all means because I have not. I've only heard other people talk about them and read Wikipedia articles. And- I mean, I would be interested in reading or skimming something as well, uh, just to get a little bit more depth on the information presented here. But even if his intentions are good, one has to point out how the intentions of like the scientists who developed poisonous gas that was used in World War One, they wanted to develop something that could be used as a non-lethal weapon, something that could be mm. deployed exactly how it is in this film. But we see that when it's actually implemented into the real world, it's not used that way. So I feel like his intentions seem noble, but man, it's pretty easy to mutate them into something really disgusting. Now, I, I don't know if this will make it into the podcast, but I sincerely believe that Wells intends for something like the UN, like he, he would be a proponent for like a very strong UN having some sort of police force that can go in and when like a dictator in Africa or something like that is causing trouble, go in and like do something about it. That's the best way that I can phrase it. And that's a way that I feel like a lot of people might still agree with what he's trying to put out there. But but yeah, it still comes across as really nasty. You always come into the question of like, okay, well, then who's in control of the UN, right? Exactly. Who watches the Watchmen? Yeah, it's always that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I picked it because I did think it would be an interesting film. Just any film that's like trying to predict things in a list like this where we're going through year by year, I think is kind of interesting. But yeah, I did not expect it to have the shades of fascism. Especially, 50 yeah. shades of fascism. <laughs> <laughs> Things that it did predict correctly, this film does fully predict live streaming to the public, which is super impressive, especially when you consider how even within the new technological era, the ability to just pull up a device and start live streaming to thousands of people at once is still very fresh. My favorite detail of that set and that effect was when they showed the people behind the board controlling the stream. You mm-hmm. could still see a physical film reel going across the table in front of them. And it was super futuristic the way the film reel was recording and like displaying and stuff. And it was cool. But it was just so funny to think this movie could predict glass screens coming down out of the sky and projecting something to people but was still like, but there would have to be some sort of physical film for it to work. <laughs> they they cannot they cannot fathom digital filmmaking, which is really funny. And I think that's something that futurists from this era uh, notoriously sort of got wrong. Right? Is just the dominance of computer systems and information and that sort of prevalence in the world. Like no one predicted the internet, or if they did, it was a very very rough, rough version of it that really doesn't resemble anything that we know today. I think the thing that this film gets uh, most spot on, and it's sort of something that we take for granted, is the dominance of airplanes and how important they would be for fighting wars and threatening mm-hmm. other people, especially threatening other people. Yeah. Um. And, and we, we kind of don't notice it when we watch this film because it seems so obvious to us. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, H.G. Wells was a big advocate for air power, especially. And that's why he even calls, I don't think they're named, maybe they are named in the movie, but in the book, at least, it is literally just called uh, the dictatorship of the air. No. 
<laughs> Aerial Board of Control. That's what Wikipedia says. Having not read the book, I can't confirm or deny it. A dumb, small, incorrect prediction in this movie that I just thought was really funny. Um, on the actual airplane, they uh, there's a balcony. There's an open balcony. Who would want that? <laughs> well, you wouldn't yeah. be able to hear anything anyone was saying. You wouldn't like the wind would be so cold and fast against you. Like it's sci-fi, so it's whatever. But yeah, also the airplane designs, some of them are not flyable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they look very cool. I mean, also something we might take for granted is just the breakout of World War Two. That That's wasn't true. a guarantee. It didn't last for two decades, as this film thinks it might. And it also doesn't result in the total collapse of civilization. World War II is probably like one of the worst things to happen to humanity. But um, this this film doesn't imagine like a victor at the end of the war. It just imagines everyone depleting all of their resources as they throw things at each other. Right. And it def- you know, even though it's incorrect in how long the war lasts and it's incorrect in the fact that society was unable to rebuild itself for so long afterwards, it is correct in that it was this huge monumental event that changed the entire world. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I mean, whatever you have to say about the victors at the end of this film and what they chose to do uh, versus the victors in World War II and what they chose to do. Both of them did decide to use their scientific progress to go to the moon. So that's something. Yeah. And the space gun, the space gun, which again, talking about like that Victorian era of science fiction, like I love this, but space guns were pretty prevalent uh, back in this era of sci-fi. You see it in George Melies film, his trip to the moon, right? Just firing a gun and getting something into orbit. I mean, you <laughs> massacre the people inside that thing. But yeah, you, you you might be able to get there. I mean, I bought this movie because it's considered a marvel in production design and visuals. And that all still holds up. There were moments where both me and my roommate just jaws dropped. It was so gorgeous to look at. And the sets were so good. That bombing of England, uh, not the peaceful one, but... <laughs> But the the bad one that actually happens at the beginning, that is so good. I love it how this movie predicts the death of cinema. Like, that's one of the main big shots. It just says it's the movie theater, so it's the word cinema in big letters. And then it just explodes and the letters go everywhere. That's always going to be fun for me to see in a movie. Also, like, mining through the entire Earth, and there's that one shot, and again, the more beautiful and pristine the effects and production, the more befuddling the movie is. And (laughs) there's this incredible shot where you see this uh, grassy hill and all of this nature and trees, and then the camera pans down, and we're all living in this, like, hollowed-out Earth underneath it. And that's not how that works. (laughs) everything would be dead where does he think the trees and nature get their nutrients from like it it was that was that was kind of funny to me because when it shows them mining through the whole world you're like oh they're gonna use up all of the resources like they did in the war since this movie acknowledges resources from the earth are finite but that's only when we're using them for war not when we're using them for progress that was that was really funny to me and again it was a beautiful shot i loved it like everyone living underground in these mined out 
big hut things. Mm-hmm. Really cool design, but it does feel really scary. It feels more like a horror idea, but the movie is like, this would be great. Yeah, and then the the five people on their balcony looking down on the masses. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> With their dumb shoulder pads. And capes. <laughs> the capes. Okay, one prediction that I hope they got right. I really do hope in the 2030s everyone's wearing skirts. I would love that. <laughs> I would really love that. I love skirts. I love wearing open clothing. And, uh, and yeah, for that to just be like a com, like that's what everyone wears all the time. Men and women. Yeah, that would be, that would be chill. I would be really into that. Do you think that we design a lot of our technology to look futuristic based on the designs of these retro films like this? Like, I just think of the iPod or a lot Mm -hmm. of Apple's designs. Do you think that they try to look like this because i was just thinking how i could i could see how this film predicts sort of like an aesthetic look that was embraced by other people white still tangible and it's just smooth yeah it's that white smooth rounded edges and everything mm-hmm. i mean I don't, I don't think this film predicted that i almost feel like the technology bases itself on films like this in order to look futuristic so people would buy it what do you think of william cameron menzies as a director man this is an impossible movie to direct (laughs) this is this is my opinion on directing i'm gonna drop this you know i feel like every episode i drop a little tidbit on how i interpret certain parts of movies yeah um truly when it comes to directing the first thing i look at is the performances because I really do think that's that should be the director's number one job is when you're on the set talking with the actors, making sure they're comfortable, making sure they understand the intention and purposes of what's happening. A lot of people love to call out actors or actresses for giving bad performances and stuff like that. But I think I think people who love to just sort of pin everything on celebrities and actors would be shocked to learn how much of that is truly up to directing and editing. Because that's the director's main job is to communicate thoughts effectively. And as far as how we perceive things on screen, that's the easiest way as a human being to interpret how well thoughts are being given to people on set is how the actors are interpreting the material. So this film doesn't really I mean, it has it has a few actors that come in and play different roles throughout and no one's particularly bad, but everyone is just sort of a stand in as a certain set of ideals. And so it kind of, it, it comes down, you know, to everything else. The sound isn't well done. And that is something that probably should have been caught earlier on, which was not because I'm pretty sure they were completely stuck on the visuals. So that does lead me to just look at the visuals. And William Caramenzies is a production designer. Funny story. We just last week discussed the 39 steps and how it was right before Hitchcock would take off in Hollywood with Rebecca. Um, William Cameron Menzies worked on that film. I mean, he's a fantastic production designer. And we talked about his debut film, The Thief of Baghdad, and his work on that was easily the best part of that film. Yes. So, you know, when it comes to the production design and the art direction of this film, I think it's actually pretty much flawless. Of course, there's like some silly future stuff that's not going to happen, but I don't It's not Flash Gordon look, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I do not care about that. Um, I think what you said about the performances does speak to his style, though, which is super, super hands off. Um, I mean, you can just tell. We we said how this film feels like a bunch of different movies, and that's partly because everyone's doing something different mm-hmm. with their acting. I feel like Menzies just isn't directing anyone. He's just letting the actors do what they want to do, and they're probably not getting any sort of direction on what this film even is which i think is why i do sympathize so much with the boss i i would stand by what i'm saying no matter what that the boss might be like. the best acted character in the film him and his wife <laughs> my roommate referred to them as team rocket and he's not wrong <laughs> um but they are the most charismatic and entertaining part of the film for me <laughs> i don't i think this is before I think this is even before the term production designer was even used because I think William Cameron Menzies sort of invents that role with his work on Gone with the Wind in a couple of years. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. It's Gone with the Wind right before Rebecca. Man. Awesome. And then from that point forward, I mean, he really is only a production designer and I mean, he does incredible work. Yeah, you get the you definitely get the feeling that he is uninterested in anything else in this film because the production design is really cool dude my favorite part was just the giant numbers for the years rising out of the ashes of the battlefields yeah like these big ghostly towering numbers to represent the decades slugging on like i loved that that looked so cool i loved all of the big marching shadows Oh, that was, yeah, that was neat too. Every time they would cut to anything like that, I thought was really, I thought that was a great way of showing something domineering and it was a great way of showing perspective. Uh, I really enjoyed all of those shots. Yeah, I mean, this is capable work from a director. This film comes down to its script, truly. And apparently H.G. Wells had more control over this production as a screenwriter working in Hollywood than any other screenwriter at that time. Apparently, he was on set every day making choices about wardrobe, about all sorts of nitty gritty stuff that a screenwriter would just never be involved with. Because, I mean, the title of this film, according to the title card at the beginning, is H.G. Wells, Things to Come. Mm-hmm. So it, if, if I'm going to say that anyone's like the auteur of this film, it's not Menzies as the director. It's definitely H.G. Wells as the writer and conceptor. Yeah, you definitely get that feeling that there was tension between them. Yeah. And apparently the producer, Alexander Korda, was also not a fan of Wells. They had a three or four picture deal together, but it all fell apart after this film. No one wanted to work with each other again. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Wells is like 70 at this time. He's super old and... Yeah, he's clearly still really into himself and into exactly how this is going to going to look. I heard that he didn't want any credits at the beginning of the film. He didn't want any credits in the film. He just wanted his name on it. Does he have credits in the film? When I say he didn't didn't want any credits, I mean that he didn't want anyone else's name to be shown at the beginning of the film. Oh, he wanted to get right into the film so that. It could just be all about him and his vision of the future, which is so narcissistic. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Also has, you know, tense of uh, fascism. And it's funny because it's normally the director who gets compared to a dictator on movie sets. I mean, he was a very famous author back then as well. That's true. 
this film only exists because it has his name on it. Should we look at our review? Because I don't have one. I mean, it was just an excerpt, I guess. But control F for Jorge Luis Borges. Do you know? Do you know Borges? Short story mm-hmm. author, literature, prominent author of the 20th century. Could almost be seen as a peer to H.G. Wells in some respects, maybe. Fashioned himself a film critic at times. He actually has reviews for King Kong and Citizen Kane at this time. You can go look them up. He doesn't seem to like movies, but he liked to write about them. And I liked what he had to say about things to come. Um, I could not find this review. I looked all over the internet for it. It must be hidden in a book in some library. Um, I found a citation for it, but... Yeah, I love this quote. Uh, Borges states, The heaven of Wells and Alexander Corda, like that of so many other eschatologists and set designers, is not much different than their hell, even though less charming. <laughs> Which is pretty Talking funny. about the third <laughs> act when we go into the future world. I like what George Orwell had to say in the second part. Um, which is just pointing out much of what Wells has imagined and worked for is physically there in Nazi Germany. The order, the planning, the state encouragement of science, the steel, the concrete, the airplanes are all there, but all in the service of ideas appropriate to the Stone Age. <laughs> it's always I always like to think of science fiction and something like this is an especially pertinent case of not being a very good indicator of the future, but being a very good indicator of what's going on at the time. And there's talk about disease right after the Spanish flu. There's talk about fascists and trying to think of ways to make a benevolent dictatorship. And even the bombing of every town at the beginning of the film sort of being this positive event because he can look at how a revolution in Russia started out from a war, but then looked like it might have been going in a positive direction. He doesn't agree with it in the end, but you can see how they that someone in this time period thinks that progress comes about because of these huge, disastrous events happening. Hmm. I yeah, I think this film's predictions concerning tyrannical governments, fascism, dictatorships are I mean, I've I've made my opinion of them pretty clear, but I'm just trying to give some sort of benefit of the doubt here. Um, but I don't know. You know, maybe I don't want to. I'm going to just go ahead and walk back on everything I just said. And I am I am happy that I watched it again because there I'm really happy I was able to cement these ideas in my mind. But revisiting it, I was like, nope, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you know, and I said last week, you know, I wasn't looking forward to revisiting this film, but I was very much looking forward to discussing it with you. And that still stands true. I've actually I've absolutely loved talking about all this with you. Yeah. And like I said, I think this film's terrible and a failure at what it's trying to do. T. But it's still interesting. The story behind it is so fascinating to me. I like science fiction in general. So something like this is right up my alley. I did put in here that I wanted to follow up on Hitchcock because I watched North by Northwest this week and The Lady Vanishes off your suggestion. Mm. And both were incredible. Uh, No hot takes here. Hitchcock is an incredible director. Right. But I did appreciate how The Lady Vanishes should be seen as an allegory for 
like the lead up to World War II in almost every way. Like the bad guy's German. He's accompanied by Italian accomplices. Hmm. Even there's a British guy who tries to wave a white flag at the German bad guys right. in order to make peace with them. And he just gets shot. Uh, so I guess we're going to have to fight. OK, um, yeah, the whole thing is pretty spot on just as a metaphor. I, I thought that was so funny. Um, and then I loved North by Northwest. I mean, obviously, as one of the greatest films of all time, I loved it. That, I, I, there's certain scenes in there, especially the airplane one. Again, no hot takes here. The airplane scene in North by Northwest is good. But I also I'm just a huge fan of Cary Grant. And I love oh, yeah. that as well. Charismatic, beautiful man. How could mm. we not love him? How could we not love him so much that yeah. we decided to watch a film next week starring Cary Grant and Irene Dunn? The Awful Truth from 1937. Check the show notes. We'll have where it is available. Is that it? Is that all we have? We'd like to give a big shout out to Nathan Royal for composing our show's music. If you're enjoying A Century in Cinema, go ahead and give us a five-star rating and a review. Those are so great. And share our podcast with someone who's looking for a new podcast to listen to or is interested in cinema. We really appreciate you guys' listenership, and we will join you on the next episode. 